We had a fairly lengthy uh, series of discussions on the, the nature of the individual, the mind, consciousness. And uh, now we've moved on. The, the overall structure uh, that we've been following is working our way through first the, uh, the first three noble truths and then finally through the Eightfold Path. The first uh, part of the Eightfold Path is right understanding. And so we were addressing the five aggregates, which led us into the nature of mind and consciousness, with some interesting implications for the nature of self. The other parts to uh, right, underst uh, right understanding are <clears throat> the three characteristics and karma. Those are the other major components uh, in, in the classical way that that's laid out. So the plan is to uh, is is to continue from what we have been discussing discussing to examine examining the uh, continuing to examine it, uh, the three characteristics and then from that move into karma. Um, but we're doing this in a, a rather loose way, uh, or put it a non rigid way, a non-rigid way. So we're going to, we're continuing to follow a structure, but <clears throat> I have gotten the strong impression from a number of people that it may be appropriate tonight to address something that is uh, Everything is related. Everything is related, but something in the in the nature of what you might call uh, current events within the the uh, Buddhist community at large. How many of you are familiar with Sasaki Roshi? And how many of you are familiar with the recent events this past week, the disclosures involving Sasaki Roshi? And how many of you, whether you've ever heard of Sasaki Roshi or not, have find yourself wrestling at times with uh, with doubt that your confidence, your faith in the Buddhist teachings uh, could use some bolstering, <laughs> especially with the issue is this is this whole awakening thing really really possible? Can I really transform myself into a better kind of person than uh, the kind of person I would like to be? So, but, yes. Are you talking about Joshu Sasaki Roshi? Yeah. Oh, and will you tell us what happened? Yes. <laughs> In brief. <laughs> um, was it the New York Times? Yeah, yes. so the New York Times published an article that for uh, the last several decades he had been uh, groping and molesting female students and that uh, it was a very familiar story from religious traditions. There was a culture of secrecy and if you told him to stop you would get ostracized. And so there was a, an independent commission of Zen teachers that uh, got together to investigate the allegations and the articles seemed to imply that the Commission found they were true, but there hasn't been any action taken. <clears throat> and the problem with this is, I, I mean, the behavior he was manifesting is, is a problem. That kind of behavior by anyone in any position is a problem. But the problem that I see is the impact that it has in terms of faith and confidence. And uh, Sasaki Roshi is just one of an increasing number of examples of incidents like this that have come to light in different forms. What they all have in common is that there's some figure who is broadly assumed to have some degree of spiritual attainment, some degree of awakening. And then at some point, they are dis facts about that person are disclosed that seem to run 
directly counter to the sort of realization that had been assumed for them. And the impact that this has on their students, well, in, in a number of these kinds of incidences, some of which I know more about, have had more direct contact with people than others, it really begins with the people that are first directly and initially affected, uh, and then by those who, through their position within the community, their close association, become aware of these things years and years before they become publicly known. And these people begin to go through their own crisis of faith. It's very shaking. It shakes them very deeply. And then finally, when these things become public, then uh, it has exactly the same effect on a much, much broader spectrum of people. You know, what is this dharma all about? Is there any truth to it all? If, you know, if someone, a 105-year-old man who's been a monastic since, I don't know, what was he, in 20s or something? No, he was younger. 12. What? 12. 12, young. Very young. 12, yeah. yeah. Not even in his 20s. 12 years old. And by that time, his practice, it seems, should have brought him to a level where he wouldn't engage in activities like this, right? <laughs> and so, you think to yourself, if he can't do it, how can I? Right? You ever have those thoughts? Yeah. Even that notwithstanding, you look at your own progress in your practice and, and you ask yourself, you know, am I really going to live long enough to ever achieve the kinds of goals that we talk about? And that is, that's a serious problem. And it's a problem that is actually, actually points to a much larger problem. No one can no one can devote the time and energy that's necessary in these practices to realize the goal without a solid confidence in the attainability of the goal. Also, if the goal if, if the attainment of the goal is not a certainty, then, you know, is it a, do you bet everything on a turn of the wheel, and if you, if, if your number doesn't come up, do you lose everything that you've got? And unfortunately, The Dharma is often presented that way. You either get enlightened or you don't. And usually the way it's presented is, and not very many people get enlightened. And the cheap, cute answer to why should I bother then is, oh well, because you're going to keep coming back lifetime after lifetime, and if you don't, if you don't make it now, you're just going to keep on suffering, so you might as well keep working. How many find that to be a totally satisfying answer? <laughs> <laughs> I'm having trouble counting any <laughs> the, <clears throat> the Dharma that the Buddha taught in his day worked quite well. There were a lot of successes. Percentage-wise, I don't know, we just don't have enough information. But if you think about the times, what we have is a band of people traveling around northern India on foot, on dirt roads, with virtually nothing ever put in writing. All communication is 
direct verbal communication. We don't know how many followers the Buddha may have had in the course of his 45 years of teaching. But it can't have been hundreds or probably even tens of thousands, maybe, but not probably not hundreds of thousands. Would you agree with that? Yet the evidence that we have from the texts that have come down to us, things that were written down later, are that the number of people who achieved at least the first level of awakening, stream entry, were definitely in the thousands. Indeed, there are references that suggest that the number who achieved the ultimate level of awakening were in excess of a thousand, perhaps in thousands as well. So if you think of the, if you compare it to today, where we have, you can listen to recorded Dharma talks as you drive to and from work. You can sign up for retreats, meditation retreats, several times a year. You can read books about every aspect of the Dharma, Buddhism, everything else. None of that was available then. Yet we had a teaching that by comparison seems to have been enormously more powerful and effective. you think there was any exaggeration, though, in some of those accounts? There might have been some exaggeration. As a matter of fact, you know, human nature being what it is, we can count on there being some. But even taking that into account, and, you know, it still, it still sounds pretty impressive. Not only that, if you look at the things that were written by people who subsequently followed the Buddha's teaching over the next centuries, and even thousand years, fifteen hundred years or more, you see, there are a lot of suttas, sutras in the Mahayana tradition. The Theravada tradition provides itself on following only what the Buddha himself taught, which they believe is contained in the Pali Sutras. But in addition to the Pali Sutras, the Mahayana contains many other sutras, which, if you read them, had to have been written by, by Buddhas. They had to have been written by people who had fully achieved what, what this Dharma promised. And there are accounts of very large numbers of people who, uh, and here we're entering an area where there was much more committed to writing, the records are be much better, the historical record is much easier to trace by scholars. When we're talking about things that happened 800, 900, 1000 AD, um, there's a lot more solid hysterical, uh, historical, probably that too, solid historical evidence that scholars can use to, to trace, to validate, to verify, you know, that these people actually did exist, that they were acknowledged to have, have uh, uh, written these things that have come down to us, that have had these realizations, were able to teach, have their teachings successfully transmitted to very large numbers of other people. So what I, what I would say to you is just simply looking backwards. There's a lot of evidence that this Dharma works, that it is attainable, and it's attainable, it's more readily attainable than the evidence in the modern world, I'd say the evidence of even the last thousand years would indicate. And I spent a lot of my life studying and practicing this Dharma. And the conclusion that I've come to is so much that I have learned that I have had to revise my understanding of or discard. I have found so many conflicting pieces of information, conflicting ideas and doctrines, that, uh, and the only way that I've been able to reconcile them myself is through my own practice and through my own experience. 
and I, it has been my project to try to understand the core of this Dharma that allowed it to have been so powerful for so long, and tried to set us back on the, on the course of that. Try to take advantage of the additions and elaborations that have reinforced and strengthened it, but to try to disregard all of those things which have basically rendered it less effective, even taking people in the wrong direction. So I guess what I'm saying to you is what we have is a, is a Dharma that truly does work. And what I would like to do is to instill as much confidence as I can in you that what this Dharma promises is possible, it is accessible. It's far more readily accessible than you might be led to believe. <laughs> but we've got to find, each of us has to find the truth of this Dharma for ourselves. What's gone wrong with this Dharma is it's become religions, it's become institutionalized, it's become all kinds of social institutions, and a kind of desire, greediness, uh, craving has arisen within the Dharma which, is, which manifests as the craving to be seen as this ultimate of superior beings, the awakened being. To be better than everybody else because you're wiser. It's very easy to look around us and to see people and we're just using Sasaki Roshi as an example. This is a fairly recent thing. Who knows? For all we know, uh, maybe we could find out next month that all these claims made over all these years were fabricated by a few people with sour grapes. It doesn't matter. There are more than enough other instances around, and I guarantee you there's going to be another one next year and the year after that, if not more often. So, without this being directed personally at Sasaki Roshi, who that we don't, don't perhaps have all the facts for, but just as that representing a phenomenon of people who have followed a Dharma teaching for many, many years, and who have gained great recognition have people willing to bow down and kiss their feet. And who have been seduced by that adulation. And then later on, we see, you know, as the saying goes, by their acts shall they be known. And it just, I, I suppose, today we live in a time where it's much, much harder to keep these kinds of things secret, and they come out, and by their acts shall they be known. Inappropriate sexual behavior is a really common one, but what it points to quite directly, the important thing is that this is someone who has not achieved the kind of realizations that that they have basically purported to have, or at least stood by quietly and allowed other people to claim on their behalf. Someone who has penetrated the understanding that we are not the separate selves we believe we are, would not engage consistently and repeatedly in behaviors that hurt other people, that create suffering for other people and confusion. And especially when that hurt and confusion has to do with their spiritual goals and aspirations. So somebody who has an understanding of no self doesn't do that. Somebody who understands the truth that suffering is caused by craving 
and that the end of suffering is the end of craving, would have, and somebody who had been practicing a methodology that truly tends them towards deeper understanding, towards insight, can see through certain things. Craving causes suffering. And ignorance is what supports and feeds craving. Operating from this inborn sense we have of being a separate self. Operating from this deluded sense that our happiness and our unhappiness are dependent upon things outside of ourselves. And that we are separate and that we can obtain happiness in through doing things through exploitation of others. That, uh, this is the most basic teaching of the Dharma. And so when people see people doing things like that, we know somehow or another they have they, they got all the words they could teach them. As a matter of fact, the funny thing is, it seems like they can teach them well enough that somebody else may far surpass them. Somebody who listens to the words and does the practice may actually surpass the teacher in realization. But, I mean, let's get real. Sexual groping. Okay? How much mindfulness does it take to realize that sexual groping doesn't produce satisfaction? For <laughs> Well, it does. When you allow the craving and the desire to build up this energy charge, and then you carry out an act that provides a temporary release of this energy, it's experienced as a satisfaction, right? Only it's not really a satisfaction. Because immediately there's the desire for more. The desire only becomes stronger. The state of satisfaction is really, it's just it's a fleeting moment that is triggering even greater dissatisfaction and stronger desire. In this context, you're not talking about in general. Sexual. I'm talking about in general. No, I'm talking I mean. about in general. I'm talking about universally. Every anything that operates from the dynamic that that I need this in order to make myself happy. Absolutely anything that operates from that. Yeah. It's exactly the same way. The need builds up the charge. If there is some degree of success in the grasping, I mean, if there isn't any success, that charge just becomes suffering, right? But even when there's success in the grasping, it's a momentary flash of satisfaction just long enough to open you up to the rising of a stronger desire move on to the next. Um, is it? So I, I'm very curious because I think several of these teachers that we've heard these kind of incidents clearly have a, some or even a very deep realization of something. And I don't think that their actions... It, maybe it's incomplete, but it, I mean, there's this profound realization that goes very deep and maybe not very wide that is very compelling when you listen to it. And so I, I just, I don't, I guess I'm trying to understand how that can be. They have a deep understanding of something, but do they have a deep understanding of what the Buddha was teaching, suffering and the end of suffering? I, I know, <clears throat> I mean, I clearly not. I just... I wonder, well, let's say that there's a, a deep realization of non-self, but all the processes don't get necessarily cleaned up by that. I mean... Well, and that's true. Somebody that reaches the first stage of awakening still has all of those conditioned processes. Craving is still present. And the sense of being a self is still present, even though the idea of a personal self is no longer of, of, uh, that, that's no longer driving. 
But there's a change in behavior. Somebody who's had that realization, by their acts too, they will be known. What you see when somebody's had that realization of no self, that I am not this personal self that I feel that I am, that I believe I am, and you see through that, you still feel like you're separate, and you still experience craving arising. But you have a knowledge, you have an understanding that you cannot lose. And so when you find yourself engaging in those behaviors, which you can, and which you very well might, which I can almost say, to some degree or another, you definitely will. I mean, unless you just, you know, are on the most pristine path of practice so that uh, you begin the process of uprooting the craving and moving on to the second and third stage seamlessly, you're going to have, you're going to have those circumstances. But with the knowledge and understanding that you have of truth through direct realization, you can see when you're causing harm to someone else. And you can, you know when you start to suffer that, that you are the author of your own suffering. So you may do these things, but you don't keep doing them over and over again for decades. You don't even keep doing them over and over again for very long. Or any single instance of it, you don't keep doing it for very long. It's like, oh my God, what am I doing to myself? I know better than this. So you can tell. So I, I agree, there's some deep understanding, but there's different kinds of understanding. And whether you call them realization or not, to call it realization, I would like to use the word realization to mean that your understanding is so deep that it's changed your intuitive view. So maybe insights. It's an insight, yeah. So if you've had a deep insight, you can't go too far down the wrong road without realizing you're going down the wrong road. That doesn't mean that you won't go down the wrong road, but it does mean that you won't keep going down the wrong road, the same wrong road indefinitely. Yes? Well, I was kind of thinking on similar lines to Nick, and, um, and it may still be totally off base, but one of the things you kind of alluded to and you've talked about it before is that even after that stream entry experience and maybe for some time afterwards that an asshole still seems like an asshole, but they are open to change. There's no feedback. And one of the thoughts with you know, somebody in a community like the community that Suzuki Roshi was in. Sasaki. Sasaki, sorry. <laughs> uh, just forget that last part. Um, <laughs> but where all you're getting is kind of positive feedback. Yeah. And there's so much tiptoeing around. And it's not even tiptoeing, there's so much um, group delusion about what's mm -hmm. appropriate that it still seems like there's not a sixth sense that you know somebody's suffering. I mean, we're, we're very intuitive and maybe you become more intuitive. But if all you're getting is that everything you're doing is okay, then is it possible that somebody could even be very far along and they just haven't gotten the feedback that something like that actually does lead to suffering? I think it could be very possible that they're that far along and haven't got the feedback that certain kinds of things aren't causing suffering. It's hard, it's hard to see that they wouldn't have gotten the feedback about that particular thing. <laughs> but I just think, I mean, you hear about other communities where it almost becomes... I mean, I know a lot yeah. are offended, but it almost becomes an honor to be, you know, yeah. footed with by the guru. Or, I, sure. I'm not, I mean, this is whatever. Maybe I'm I know. It's, a, it's, it, it, it's an honor to be flirted with by the rock musician, right. too, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, but we're trying, we're trying to get beyond those things, right? I mean, you know, who in the room hasn't had a uh, male dog climb up their leg. <laughs> you blame the dog? I mean, depending on how fussy you are, you might feel a bit repulsed by it, or you might not, but you don't blame the dog. You know, what the heck? It doesn't, doesn't know any better. But, you know, a, 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 a Tibetan guru? There's, there's a difference. I just want to say... Why we should be surprised or uh, uh, get upset or whatever, having hard feeling about it? It's all over. Look at Catholic priests, look at sure. evangelists, <clears throat> look at famous people, very famous. It's always they ruin their career just because mm -hmm. they involve with 
outside of their marriage or something like that. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it is. It's all over the place. Things. Who cares? But you probably came to this dharma because you thought it was different. Catholic priests are only supposed to behave themselves through a combination of faith and willpower, not through a transformation of the kind of person they are. And the Catholic Church does not offer itself as a vehicle for personal transformation of that kind. That's what this Dharma does, though. This Dharma says you can change the way you perceive the world, you can change the way you react to the world. And <clears throat> so what does it tell us that this is happening? What it's telling us is that within institutionalized Buddhism, people can invest decades of their life. They can become masters of intellectual understanding. They can dispense the teachings verbally without any true realization. That a profound intellectual understanding doesn't cut it by itself. But as with a profound intellectual understanding, you're like a super good textbook or a really good collection of tapes. You can regurgitate all of this intellectually understood material and it can still serve a lot of people. But if you've invested all this time and you haven't realized the payoff for yourself, and then people start giving you a much more common currency, the payoff and a much more common currency, personal admiration. You know, you looked up. It's very easy to settle for that. And that's one of the dangers. I mean, you start being seen as, as, as the wise one, the teacher, the, the attained one. That if you haven't, if you haven't really got some attainment, you can very easily settle for that, and you can keep on dispensing your well-digested information. But if you haven't, and, and I, think, I think there's a, a lot of teachers out there like that who don't mess with the finances and get involved in sexual things and do other stuff that bring attention to themselves. But there are those who, who do, and they're the ones that become obvious. It becomes obvious to us when somebody starts engaging in behavior that we find unacceptable even amongst people who've never done any spiritual practice at all. When we find, when we find them engaging in that behavior, then we know for certainty that the words that they're speaking are, are empty words. They may be true words, but they're coming, they're empty in the sense that they don't have a genuine understanding behind them. And that is the problem. That is the real problem. And the other problem is the effect that it has on us. And I don't know how to convey to people, this Dharma is really true. It does really work. It has changed me in ways that I absolutely cannot. I try to understand so that I can explain and direct other people. But when those changes took place, I didn't even know what was happening. I only knew after the fact that I was changed. And I continue to change. I continue to practice and I continue to learn. I don't see this necessarily as something that has an end. I don't care whether it does or not. As a matter of fact, it's more fun than it doesn't. Every day I get up and there's an opportunity to learn more, to change more, and understand more, more deeply. But from my own personal experience, there are desires and there are aversions that I do not experience. They, they disappear. It really does work. Yeah? Um, I have a couple of things to say. One is, I have a question in my head, but I don't know if I can put it into words. As sexual beings, all human beings are. And yeah. our constituents, our teachers, a lot of our people are married. They have relationships. Some people are living with other people and have relationships. Do we have the right to expect them to give up what we have, what we do? I mean, do we have the right to put them on such a pedestal that um, 
that they fall from grace in front of us and we say, um, look what you've done. We don't agree with what you've done. Um, we're not going to follow you anymore. Or do we look at all the good people that have overcome sexual attraction or whatever and say, we like them, we need to follow them. Do we focus on the one person that fell or do we focus on all the other ones that haven't? I'm not sure. I totally... <laughs> I not thinking if I can put it into yeah. words or not. Yeah. But, but let me see what I, I can do with it. Okay. It's not about... It's not about sexuality being inherently good or bad, because it's not. Nothing is inherently good or bad. It's only what you do with it. And it's, it's what it comes down to. And, and when you were talking about any other spiritual system, any other system of thought, it, they have their own premises. But in, in Buddhism, it's pretty clear. Don't cause harm. Okay? And that's one of the precepts, is, is refrain from engaging in sexual misconduct. That's sexual behavior that causes harm. That causes harm to anyone else, or that causes harm to yourself. It's not a condemnation of sexual behavior. It doesn't say that people should only have sex inside marriage. It doesn't say that people should only have one sexual partner. It doesn't say that people should only have sex with people of one particular sex. It doesn't say any of those things. It says... Whatever you do with your sexuality, if it's causing harm to others, to anyone, you have to have a look at it. And, and you have to, you know, basically I think you can crystallize out the, the morality that is the core of Buddhism is very simple. This world is already filled with pain and suffering. Don't create any more unnecessary and avoidable pain and suffering. Now, if one person is in love with you, but you love somebody else, it's true, you going with that person is going to hurt this person. You have to make a decision about that. Buddhism doesn't say, well, no, you, you, you can't have a happy relationship yourself um, because this person is going to be hurt. But on the other hand, there are a lot of, there's a lot of scenarios that you could create that involve the same dynamics you know, you and two other people, where you are causing unnecessary harm. You have to think of the harm, the total amount of harm that you, you are causing, as well as you can understand it. And, you, and you're going to be wrong. And there's nothing wrong with being wrong. Because that's, you know, and that's why I would say, you know, with, with somebody like this, some, some, some Roshi or some Lama or somebody like that, It's, it's not necessarily what they do, but how they do it and the impact that it has on others. And, and there are reasons for it. And, and how it affects everybody around us. So it's, it's deeply disappointing, yet again, to hear this story and 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 at the same time, these teachings that in Joshi Sasaki Roshi's case, you know, these teachings have been of great value to many people. And then now, now what happens? It's kind of like, where, where do we? How do we write the story of Joshi Sasaki Roshi? Do, well. I'm not interested in writing the story of Joshu Sasaki Roshi. I have a bigger story. What happens to the rest of the people in this world that are suffering and creating enormous suffering for each other? Uh, and it's their story that I'm concerned with. So those that look at any of these fallen spiritual leaders and it causes them to lose their faith and their confidence to think that, oh, well, I, I can't do it. Maybe even this goal is not even attainable. I, th I think that's a terrible outcome. The positive outcome I could see is if people could stop believing in magic, stop living in fantasy worlds, realize that that teachers are human beings and 
they may have a, they may have achieved some kind of attainment they may not have and one of the things that I don't like that happens over here is a spiritual teacher especially in the Buddhist tradition will not say that they have or have not any particular attainment instead they leave it up to a bunch of followers to tell everybody else oh this person is you know a Eighth Bhumi Bodhisattva, this person is an Arhat, you know. And then they never say it themselves, but they adopt the role. And they base this all on the fact that long, long time ago, the Buddha said, basically don't ingratiate yourself with others by claiming meditation achievements that you have not, like, like med achievements in meditation that you haven't actually realized personally. He didn't say, don't tell anybody what your attainments are. He said, don't pretend you have attainments in order to make people think better of you. But that got turned around to say, okay, we don't tell anybody. And you know what that does? It makes it really easy for people to, I, I'm not going to tell you, but, well, wink, wink. <laughs> <laughs> and let everybody else draw their conclusions. So what I like to come on this is realizing you've, you've got to make some judgments about these people and you've got to keep a careful eye on them. And, and they might still have an enormous amount to teach you, but to the extent that they haven't realized what they're teaching, what they're teaching is limited. You know, a book, a book has a lot to teach you, but the book is limited, right? It's only whatever I put in that book to start with. And you can make what you want out of what's in that book. You can take the teachings of any one of these teachers and perhaps you can, you can achieve things that they were never able to achieve themselves. We've got to recognize that. Now, the more that a person has realized something themselves, the better they're going to be able to teach it to you. It just stands to reason, right? It follows, naturally. And so we do need to look at these people with a critical eye. And we need to try to understand what we see. And I'm not saying that we should judge them from some moralistic point of view. Because we shouldn't. But we should judge them from the words that come out of their own mouth. We should judge them from the teaching they espouse. If they teach non-harming of others and they're harming others, you know there's something wrong. Right? If they teach that every time you exercise craving, the craving becomes stronger, and you see them repeatedly, over and over and over again, exercising craving, there is something wrong. Right? A few basic things like that. So, throw out any kind of external sense of judgment or anything like that, but look for internal consistency. What somebody teaches you, they what they manifest in this world should be consistent with what they teach you. And if there are aspects of that person that are not consistent, they should openly be willing to say, yep, I'm still working on that part. I haven't got that down yet. And if they do that, if they do that, then we can, maybe we can get back to the kind of thing that happened in the Buddha's day and, and for many centuries, uh, after his time. So, it does work. And a lot of what you'll read and hear and learn, it, it's so messed up with so much baggage that doesn't work, it's not an easy task. But hey, you know, it's better than coming into this totally on your own. Nobody point, excuse me, to point the way at all. The problem is that it is easy for a beginner in the Dharma to say, if the teacher is bankrupt, then the teachings must be bankrupt. So what we want to try and do is separate that the teachings can still have enormous value, even if the person who told them to you 
That's not, that's absolutely right. So, how do we then? This is the question. If I have a less than perfect instructor, I've had a lot of less than perfect instructors. Right. I, I bet you've learned a lot from them. Anyway, yeah. In spite of myself. <laughs> and and, and um, that I, I missed that chapter. Could you say that again? How do we get what you're saying is really good? Oh, you're not perfect yet. I get that, but could you just go back to what you're saying? That that how do we teach a newbie to say uh, to say that the teachings are valuable and to look at them instead of hmm, well, you're just doing this say do as I say not as I do. Why why not acting like a bunch of psychophants? <laughs> Call your teacher on this stuff. And if they know what they're talking about and they're honest, they they can talk to you about it and they can explain it. Okay. You know, and it, it, you, you, your judgment might be wrong. Your judgments often will be wrong. You you might say teacher doing something and say, Oh, Buddhist teachers don't drink wine. You're drinking wine, you must be a bogus. <laughs> You know, ask them about it. <laughs> you know, say, how is this consistent with everything else you teach? And I find, but call them on their stuff. And hopefully, if you do that, you see the teachers are the ones that get trapped. I've seen this happen. The teacher, somebody, you know, they're after their own awakening, and they spend their time studying and practicing and everything else, and they're saying, you know, I want to... I want to achieve this goal for myself. And they get sidetracked by a bunch of adoring followers. And then they're so busy living up to their image that, that their personal advancement on a spiritual path stops. They can really stand to have a few people come on and call them on their stuff. It'll get them back on track. It will keep them from being like, devoting all their time and energy of maintaining a fantasy. When I was first learning about this, we talked about this in terms of people we called the sneaker kissers. The which? Sneaker kissers. People who were so in love with what you were teaching that they would kiss your sneakers for doing it. And that would then get distorted into, oh wow, they're kissing my sneakers. I must be totally cool. Yeah. And so... The, the antidote for this is to have, there are other teachers who say, you've got a sneaker kisser there. There's a, a community support, a teacher of teachers. Why is there not other Roshi, other Lamas who say, you've got a problem. And, and the teachers support each other so that it isn't left to the newbies. Well, it's, it's not that they aren't there, but the, in, the institutionalization of this whole thing has tended to suppress that enormously. But it, it's not the I, I don't I don't know in the Zen community, but I'll bet you there's some Roshis that have had some things to say. I know in the Tibetan community, there's lots of lamas that have things to say about other lamas. But institutionally, it's really suppressed. That's the one thing about orthodoxy. Once you become a part of the orthodoxy, an instrument of the orthodoxy, then everything you do starts to support the orthodoxy. And, you know, it, it gets really hard to step outside of that. I think we could be a little, well, I'm not quite sure where I'm going with this, but we have an understanding of psychology that they didn't have in the Buddhist time. Yeah. We have a lot of information about what people do unconsciously, projection, you know, there are things that, that in some ways, I think spiritual traditions are trying to positively take advantage of. I mean, I've heard it said that, you know, in the IMS, Spirit Rock community, they basically are taught, don't be too personal with any student because then they can't project on you anymore and they need to project on you in order to trust you enough, to, you know, so that they're trying to use this in a positive way, 
but at the same time opening themselves up to all kinds of um, inappropriate sort of mm -hmm. psychological energy, I guess. I guess I just, I don't have a conclusion here, but just that we do know a lot about psychology, about the ability to sector off a portion of the mind and have it isolated from the rest mm -hmm. of the mind. Yeah. And, and there's just a lot of, I noticed when contemplating this, that as far as I know, there haven't been scandals coming out of like the spirit rock IMS type of tradition. And I don't know if that's because they deal with emotion and other things explicitly and Zen kind of is just all about the mystery and you can't explain it. But there seem to be things that work better. There seem to be knowledge that's germane um, other than the Dharma mm -hmm. that can kind of keep us on track a little more. Well, there are all kinds of things. But one of the things that you find in IMS that makes it different than, than uh, uh, some other forms, is IMS really is very non-traditional. Insight Meditation Society, the Spirit Rock, and uh, in Barrie, Massachusetts, where Insight Meditation Society started. They go out of their way to be teachers, not gurus. Right? And, you know, I think this is a really important part of it, is uh, that I, I think there could be. I think IMS could benefit from more openness and honesty from their teachers about what their successes have been and what their failures have been. But I credit them totally with, you know, you know, I'm a human being, I've been following this path, I'll teach you what I know, you know, don't bow down and kiss my feet. Don't suck the toes of my secret sneakers. <laughs> you, don't, you don't know where they've been. <laughs> you know, you know, and I think that's tremendously to their advantage. And that's what I'm saying, that, that, that there needs to be. There, is, there are a bunch of wrong ideas about the spiritual path. That somehow just being around somebody who is awakened is going to magically have some effect on you. It's not. <laughs> no, but, uh, I just, it's going to have some effect. I mean, no, we come I mean, here and we sit with you, and it's different than when we sit by ourselves. But it's not going to have any magical effect. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, and the other thing that this idea that somehow you get enlightened. Yeah, five minutes ago I was a gro groping world being. Now, now, I'm, now I'm above all that. You know, it's, it, it's a process that happens more gradually and. and by stages, it, it is more than anything else. It's it's cognitive. You know, all the bells and whistles, the choirs of angels, the the ground shaking, the flowers falling from heaven, the lightning, everything else. All those bells and whistles are worth nothing at all. It's cognitive. It's waking up. It's understanding. It's understanding at a very, very deep level, seeing things in a different way. And it's a, it's a progress of understanding. It's progressive. Bits of understanding lead to bigger chunks of understanding. Yeah? Is it cognitive um, in distinction from emotional? Well, it's cognitive in a way that alters. You see, your emotions, your emotions emerge from some part of your unconscious mind. And the circumstances in which they emerge and how they're directed and the strength of them are all the result of your past conditioning. The cognitive component of insight alters that conditioning. And so the way your emotions manifest is altered in, in, in a corresponding way. So, in terms of, if you have a, a purely emotional experience, and there's probably lots of people, people in this room, there's lots of people around who have very common kind of emotional experiences, just feeling at one with everything. It's totally emotional. It's glorious. It's wonderful. And I want to get back to that more than anything else. But they haven't learned anything from it. There is no cognitive component. So no matter how great the emotional experience, it's here today, gone tomorrow. 
And it doesn't matter whether it happened to you in an insight retreat or whether it happened to you after you took LSD or what. If it's only an emotional experience and it has no cognitive component, it's going to evaporate. If it's got a little cognitive component, then it's not going to completely evaporate and it's going to serve as a basis for more. The bigger the cognitive component, the more that something truly important has happened. Yeah. So I was reading, uh, I just finished Dan Ingram's book, and I was reading uh, something that Colvick wrote also this week, and they were both talking about uh, mental illnesses and shadow sides not disappearing as a, as a part of the path, that, that these were things that they both found uh, stayed with them. I was wondering if you thought about just a, a mind that was split and remained split, that uh, one part of the mind had seen emptiness and the other hadn't. <laughs> Actually, that's what everyone who's achieved the first stage of enlightenment is that person. One part of the mind seeing emptiness and the other parts haven't yet. So, I mean, uh, I, I've never met Dan Ingram. He claims to be an arhat. Uh, maybe that's a false claim. But he, he, he makes this argument in way too many pages that uh, <laughs> uh, there are no a there's no actions that are restrained by being an arhat, and the, the things about you that would lead you to bad actions are still there, and you're more skillful at dealing with them. But things like shadow sides and mental illnesses are, are, yeah. are uh, remaining present. In his many, many pages, he's made a really good description of what it's like to be uh, at the second, uh, mostly at the second stage of enlightenment, sort of at third stage. He's made a really good description of exactly what it's like to be a once-returner and sort of what it's like to be a non-returner, but he hasn't said a word of what it's like to be an arhat. What's that? Um, wouldn't you say it's possible for this is a kind of a relationship question <clears throat> for two people that are in a sacred, uh, committed relationship, both on the path and uh, that they have been able to perhaps get to a point where the grasping and craving uh, have diminished to the point where they're maybe not completely gone, but quite a bit, quite a bit uh, diminished so that they, they would have a form of sexual union that is not like your typical lustful, blah, you know, of, of I guess, normal people. Normies. <laughs> non, 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 non practitioners. Let, let me see if I can answer that for a minute. I, I, I like the way Shinzen talks about this as a complete experience. What happens when you remove craving, desire? What ha and this applies what happens when you remove the lust from sex is that you open yourself up to the possibility of a complete experience. And the complete experience is something that goes far, far beyond what you will have, what you can ever have when it's driven by, by, by lust, mm -hmm. desire, craving. The complete experience is multidimensional. But if you just look at the physical, sensory aspect of it, if any of you have ever had sex before, you know you go through this process. Uh, uh, oh, that's good. I want more of that. Oh, that's not quite as good. How do I get back to it? It's like, you know, in, in the intense throes of the approach to orgasmic release, it's, it's, it's like this insane energetic struggle grasping after 
grasping after these fleeting pleasures, one right after another of different types. And, oh, well, I didn't even know that was there. Oh, wait a minute, have I lost this one? The goal is orgasm. What's that? The drive is toward orgasm and not, not having a complete experience. That's right. If you have a complete experience, it's just you open up to, you know, you, you're not grasping to anything because as soon as you grasp, you lose something. And, uh, you know, uh, um, so, yeah, you can have sex as a, as a, 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 as a total experience. But it also has other dimensions to it, too. What we touch upon, it's appropriate to talk about on Valentine's Day. What we, <laughs> what we touch on is, in really good sex, is the giving and taking, you know. The pleasure I give you becomes an important one. It becomes even more rewarding than the pleasure I receive. But then it keeps going back and forth, back and forth. The pleasure I give you gives me pleasure in return. And then you get the pleasure of giving me pleasure, and so on and so forth, right? So it, it has a whole dimension that can be part of the complete experience that just the sensory stimulation wasn't. I mean, after all, when it comes to the sensory stimulation, you can do a much better job yourself. What? <laughs> 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 Where you really need the other person is this emotional dynamic. You know, with giving and taking. Yeah. Very true. Thank you. You're welcome. That's <laughs> <laughs> yes, fun. So this is turning the subject back But um one thing I find really helpful about all this uh, with Sasaki Roshi, um, whatever actually occurred and whatever we're able to learn over time is that there are these people to go to in the Buddhist community that um, people are talking to and they're trying to find out, you know, what occurred, what kind of harm happened. That's a remarkable thing that couldn't have happened. In any other era, wouldn't have happened a hundred years ago, yeah, that's for it's, sure. It's yeah. astonishing in that we, you know, we had some, um, I don't know if you'd call them scandal, but harm happened in the community in yeah. southeastern Arizona where there was a death, and other Buddhist teachers said, Look, had said for some years to that particular teacher, This is inappropriate, you need to behave differently uh, with the way this community mm -hmm. works. And that, that never would have happened before. So I find yeah. that very hopeful. And, and the fact that the Dharma is doing such profound transformation in people's mm -hmm. lives despite these yeah. news that continually break out, I, I think that's, that's astounding. That speaks beautifully for the yeah. path. And I would also like to say that I have been a student of Sasaki Roshi's for 10 years. It was in his elder years, and I, I never experienced anything but profound respect, beauty, and a great depth of practice. And... Um, you know, I was only in uh, retreats four or five times a year, but it was mm -hmm. um, deeply transformative and powerful. But the only thing that struck me is I like to look at teachers also by seeing what kind of community and how is that community with one another. And when I sat with him at Mount Baldy, as opposed to the beautiful little center in Tempe or the center he has in New Mexico, there was, there was just some sort of pervasive power imbalance there that um, struck me as very non-resonant. And that was my signal to not continue in that community. But for Roshi, I continue to hold the deepest respect. And yet, it may be that some of what has been discussed is also true. So my own plan is just to continue to practice and yeah. appreciate the, the good that we see. Well, where I come from is I believe that this Buddha Dharma, not only does it work, it's really the only hope for human being on this planet. And so anything I say, everything I do is trying to promote that and to prevent any kind of disillusionment and discouragement from things like this. One last thing I want to say, and then we've already over time, so we'll, I forgot to set the alarm tonight, along with everything. <laughs> this will be the last thing I, I say before we close up, and that's it. One thing about this Buddha Dharma, it works, it's attainable in its life, but the other thing, very important, it's good in the beginning, it's good in the middle, it's good in the end. It's not, earlier this evening, I 
use this description, you make this huge investment, you know, you, you put your money on the table and the wheel rolls and then comes up to the day of your death and you either win or lose. It's not like that. It's a continuous win. If you're, if you're practicing a solid version of the Dharma, it's a every uh, the longer you practice, the more benefits you you receive from it. And so it, it's not a it's not a win or lose gamble. And any Dharma practice that doesn't work this way for you, I mean, I, I'm not saying that the first few days of a retreat aren't going to be really rough because they are. But if if you're doing a week-long retreat, by the end of the week, you should you should have accomplished something that that is, is is tangible. After you've been practicing for six months, if you realistically examine your life, your your happiness, your interactions with other people, you should see some changes. And this is this is a criteria that the Buddha himself laid down about the Dharma. He was asked by the uh, the uh, villagers in uh, one particular place, uh, it's called the Kalama Sutra. That all these teachers come through teaching all these dharmas. How do we know? How do we know which one we should follow? And he, of course, he might have expected to say, "Well, well, mine, of course, because it's the best." But he didn't. He said, "You follow the one if it makes." If it leads to, if it uh, improvement in your life, makes your life better, makes you happier, makes the people around you happier. If it if it improves everyone that's in, in contact with you, that's a good dharma. Follow it. Any dharma that doesn't, anyone, anyone that makes you less happy, causes you pain, causes suffering, misery for those around you, abandon that dharma. Because that is that's another criteria. You know, yes, you want to judge your teachers, you want everything else. So you, you're responsible for the teacher you end up with. You really are. You're also in the, responsible for the practice you end up with. And if your practice, if you've been plugging away for years and getting nowhere, you owe it to yourself to investigate some other possibilities. You really do. So look for a teacher who who is consistent with what he teaches in his behavior. And look for a dharma that works when measured by the standard by the standard of what you put into it, you should get more out than what you put into it. It should you should be winning all the time you play the game. So, so we didn't say too too much about the three characteristics, although this is all about the three characteristics. Uh, thank you, and we'll continue on with the regular curriculum. <laughs> 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 <laughs>